our prayer to begin class, I'd like to read this verse to you from the 30th chapter of Isaiah. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. Our Father, we do long for You. We long for Your divine touch on this world in which we live. We see so much tragedy and we see so much rampant evil. And Father, we desire to see the tragedy uh, reduced and stopped and we desire to see the evil halted and cast out. We know, Father, that uh, those things will probably transpire only at the time of the return of Christ. And Father, we do look for that return and we pray that it might be soon. We're grateful that you give us yet freedom week by week in this land to gather together in the name of Christ and to study your word and we look forward to all that you're going to continue to do in our lives and the ways in which you will use us to be light and salt in this society. Father, we pray for your wisdom and guidance through this hour in our class this morning and, and as the word is proclaimed in the service and uh, in the various other classes, uh, that are transpiring this morning. We trust for your Holy Spirit to be present in each class in a palpable way. Father, if there are those who are on our premises this day who have never come to know Christ in a life-transforming way, we pray that you will do that good work in their hearts this day. Lord, we long to see the kingdom of God expand and the kingdom of darkness destroyed. And so we pray that your word will will not return void even as you have promised uh, this day as it is proclaimed. And we, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in our interlude of Israel through the millennia, before we begin our in-depth study of the kings, first and second kings, we've been looking at how God promised to Abraham the land that we know as Canaan or we know today as Israel, but has been known as Canaan and Israel and Judah and Palestine has been the name attached to it for nearly 2,000 years now. And last Sunday, we came to the point and even beyond the point of understanding that that land had been incorporated into this vast empire, which as you see in green on here is the Persian Empire. You know, m many people today, especially in the United States, where we're, we've never been too well schooled on Asian history. I can remember going all the way through. I went to good public schools, by the way. And I went through all the way through, and I don't think we ever touched on Asia, you know, at all. Maybe, you know, West Asia, you know, Mesopotamia, that kind of thing. And to realize, for example, many people think today that Islam is monolithic in the sense that all the people who are Islamic are Arabs. Now, we all know that that isn't true because we all know that there are Arabs in this country, or I should say Muslims in this country. But Iranians are not Arabs. The people who live in Iran today are not Arabs. They're descendants of the ancient Persians. The Persians are Indo-European speaking peoples that moved down out of Central Asia. They are not ethnically related to the Arabs who are Semitic, related to the Hebrews. A and yet they have absorbed Islam. So have the Turks who are totally unrelated to either the Iranians or the Arabs. And they have absorbed Islam, and, and they are, of course, very important players in what we are talking about in this theme of Israel 
through the millennia. The modern Iranians are descended from the ancient Persians. And the uh, Persians first began to migrate into this area uh, that we know of as Iran today about 3,000 years ago. In fact, the word Iran comes from the word Aryan, A-Y-R-A-N, you know, that, that the concept that Hitler tried to use as some kind of a supreme race. In thinking about that, of course, Hitler never thought of Persians and Indians of India, who are also Aryans. Henry wasn't thinking of them, of course, in his <laughs> warped way of viewing things. But the Persians built this huge empire, largest that the world had ever seen, and the lands of Israel and Judah were absorbed into it as, as part of one of the 120 satrapies or provinces into which uh, this empire was divided. We noted that this empire was destroyed by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, although we usually think of him in the, in the context of being Greek, was actually ethnically Macedonian. But the Macedonians and the Greeks were first cousins for all practical purposes. And Alexander the Great, Great spoke Greek fluently. His teacher was Aristotle. I mean, in the ancient world, could you have had a more, uh, you know, a more famous teacher than Aristotle? No. You know. Probably, uh, coming out of Greece, no person in history has been more influential than Aristotle. And he was Alexander's teacher. Alexander decided that uh, he was a god, or at least the son of God, and that uh, he was destined for world conquest. And so like later people such as Napoleon and Hitler and, and Genghis Khan, he had this dream of conquering the whole world. And so he set out and we noted his activities ending up clear over in India, where he finally had to turn around because his men just said, hey, we've gone far enough, Alex, we want to go home, you know. And so he returned to Babylon where he died, and he was only, you know, in his middle 30s. Died, it's, he's, he's often portrayed like a meteor, which comes bright, you know, and he goes, burns out, you know. Who was it? Douglas MacArthur said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. Well, not Alexander. <laughs> Alexander just, you know, went like that at the height of his glory and the height of his power after building this vast empire. The three colors on here simply represent the chronological expansion of his empire. First he conquered the area in purple, then he conquered the area in orange, and then he conquered the area in yellow. The whole thing comprising Alexander's empire, which was held together by the personality of Alexander the, uh, alone. And we talked about the fact that uh, Alexander came down through Palestine or, or through Israel and Judah, through that territory, and there is a story that he actually went up to Jerusalem and, and worshipped at the temple and all of this, but that's not validated by secular history or, you know, outside sources. And so maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. We don't really know. But we do know that during Alexander's time, there was, there was no serious damage done to the Jewish worship there during the time of Alexander. When Alexander passed off the scene so quickly, his empire divided, and I think we noted this last week, into several pieces, three major pieces, four to begin with. The scripture in Daniel that we read last week said that when the big horn was broken off the goat, four smaller horns arose. And those sm four smaller horns represented the kingdom or the empire of the Seleucids, which is in yellow, of the Ptolemies, which is in pink. And then there were two smaller kingdoms over here, 
founded by a man by the name of Cassius, another man by the name of Lysimachus. But those were eventually absorbed together into a single third Antigonid kingdom, which ruled over here for a period of time and then eventually broke up into pieces, as you see here, the kingdom of Pergamum and the, the alliance of Sparta and some of these other uh, smaller entities. So still ruled by people of Greek descent, but no longer a monolithic single empire. So I, I think that's where we left off last week. Other than the passages in Daniel that are somewhat enigmatic, particularly the 11th chapter of Daniel's prophecy, the Bible doesn't deal directly with the Persian Empire in its latter years, nor does it deal with the conquest by Alexander the Great, nor does it deal with the era of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, with that exception, which I made a second ago. Chronologically, the latest Old Testament records are the last chapters of Nehemiah, which covers the reign of Artaxerxes I, and I gave you that list a couple, three weeks ago, whenever it was, which hopefully you still have here, which shows you the, the major Persian emperors, not all of them, but the major Persian emperors, and you find that Artaxerxes I, you have Cyrus the Great, Cambyses, who just had a short reign, Cyrus the Great's grandson Darius I, who was the greatest of all the Persian emperors, then Xerxes, which we know in the scripture as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, and then Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes I. So Nehemiah, who had been in the royal court of Artaxerxes, writes his account in the reign of Artaxerxes I, the latter part in particular. And then we also have the prophecy of Malachi, which was probably written in the third quarter of the fifth century before Christ. In other words, between 450 and 425 BC, Malachi, the prophecy, would have been written. So, the Old Testament literally ends, if you have looked at it recently, with the book of Malachi. And that is chronologically appropriate. Now, Nehemiah is a little bit early in the book for the chronological approach, but Malachi does uh, fit there. It is basically the epilogue to the Old Testament, if you will. And thus, following Malachi and moving through the period until the beginning of the New Testament, we have what is called the intertestamental period, the period between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes this is called the 400 silent years because during that time we have no canonical writings. That is, no canonical writings as the Jews and as the Protestants view it. There are some writings which the Catholics and the Orthodox religions have incorporated into their Bible, which come from that time period, which they call canonical. But the Jews never considered them to be canonical. So why should the Christians? consider them. And those are the books known as the Apocrypha. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. So what we're looking at is the period between the last words and events accorded in, recorded in the Old Testament and the first words and events recorded in the New Testament. That is that nearly 400 year period of time, the intertestamental period. Malachi, the name means my messenger, provides the perfect springboard into this intertestamental era because not only did his prophecy mark the end 
of God's pre-incarnate revelation, but it also predicted the first events of the New Testament, particularly the coming of one that we would know, know as John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Messiah. So let me turn to read a couple of passages. First, the very, uh, let's, let me turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi is at the very end of the Old Testament. And we'll be reading a couple of passages from Malachi. But first, let me read to you Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you will turn to Matthew chapter 11, reading at verse 7. Matthew 11, 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John, meaning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. And that is a quotation out of Malachi chapter 1, verse 3. So Jesus is tying the prophecy of Malachi directly together with John the Baptist. So you see that connection at, at that particular point. Now, the very last words that you will find recorded in the scripture of the Old Testament which God spoke to his people, are directly linked to the very first words that God spoke to an individual in the New Testament era. And so if you will again look at Malachi in chapter 4, the end, the very end of the Old Testament, the last three verses of the Old Testament. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb which is Mount Sinai, for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, if you'll turn to the first chapter of Luke, this is the Lord speaking through the angel to Zacharias. He will referring to John the Baptist, who was going to be born to Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that passage is cross-referenced to the passage in Malachi that we just read. So you see how Malachi was given inspiration by God to see 400 years down through time and to be able to prophesy the coming of the one who would be the forerunner, to prophesy concerning John the Baptist who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah 
Elijah was considered by the Jews to be one of the greatest prophets in their entire history. And that's one of the prophets whose lives we'll be studying as we look at the, book, uh, the books of Kings. Elijah and Elisha, fan fabulous men. And John the Baptist was in, their, in, in that man's stead in the New Testament period. Now the prophet Zechariah, who comes just before, in order of the Old Testament, just before Malachi, prophesied about a hundred years earlier in time than Malachi. And he also gives us an important link with the New Testament in his prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah. Let me read from the ninth chapter of Zechariah at verse 9. Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and, will, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Isn't it amazing how God can give to his prophets the ability to see a little ways ahead and then even to transcend beyond that to the end of time? I don't think Zechariah fully understood what he was saying there. But, he, but he's talking about Jesus Christ coming in, his first in, in, in the first advent and, and then talking in effect also about the second advent, which hasn't yet occurred. All in the same prophecy. And, you know, you think about this and you wonder, how can anybody sit down and take the Avesta and the Quran and the Bible and put them side by side and say, well, you know, they're all holy books and they're all pretty much the same. If you have any understanding you will see there is no comparison. In the Christian scriptures, the, the Jewish Bible and the New Testament, being able to see into the future, I mean, make Nostradamus look like a total fool, which of course he was, but I mean, you know, all these other guys, Edgar Cayce and Gene Dixon and all the others, they pale into total insignificance compared to prophets who can give us, from our perspective anyway, clear-sighted understanding or reasonably clear-sighted understanding of the future. Just because no divinely inspired Word of God was recorded during the 400 silent years does not mean that God wasn't in Israel actively drawing His people to Himself and working in their lives. God did not take a vacation, go away and say, well, you know, I've, I've given them the Old Testament, let them do it, and uh, I'll come back later. No, he was there the whole time with them through that period of time. Godly people continued to live in the land of promise throughout that 400-year period, even though the land would be overrun by pagan Gentiles, beginning with the with the Persians, or actually going back earlier than that to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the extension of the Greeks and the Seleucid uh, kingdom, the Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic kingdom and, and the Seleucid kingdom. Through it all, we're talking about pagan kingdoms that worshipped other gods. And yet God was faithful to keep his people. And out of the intertestamental period come Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph, Anna, and Simeon, and others who kept the faith 
even during the period when God was, quote, silent in the sense of producing canonical scripture. Because if that weren't true, then we'd all be in trouble because there hasn't been any canonical scripture written since the first century. That's because we have the whole revelation. Unfortunately, there are denominations and groups today who think God is still you know, producing new revelation as he did before, and they're always having all kinds of revelations, many of which are contrary to the old revelation. I don't think so. The Ptolemies, you remember the Ptolemaic kingdom or empire, which was centered on Egypt here and included the island of Cyprus, also included Palestine in the early years of the uh, post-Alexandrian period. The Ptolemies are called the Ptolemies because the founder of the empire's name was Ptolemy. P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. That was his name. And so they became known as the Ptolemies. They could be called Pharaoh, at least from the Egyptian perspective. They could be called Pharaoh. Often they're called kings or emperors. They're Greeks. Now, to some degree, they did intermarry with Egyptians, and that's what gave uh, people like Cleopatra something of their allure, you know, because she was part Greek and part Egyptian. The Ptolemies, who ruled Israel and Judah, the land of promise, uh, ruled from 323 B.C. to 198 B.C., from Alexandria in Egypt. And their rule was relatively benign, they didn't really bother the Jews much, and they allowed their theocracy, their, their worship at the temple and so forth, to go on pretty much unhindered. Pay taxes, acknowledge the Ptolemy, and, and you know, you got along okay, reasonably so. As we noted before, during the day of Jeremiah, which goes all the way back to the Babylonian era, thousands of Jews fled from Judah into Egypt. And they formed a nucleus of Jewish culture and civilization in Egypt. By the time we're talking about, their descendants had become very numerous, and other Jews had been attracted to Egypt, particularly to the city of Alexandria. Alexandria in Egypt was the capital of the Ptolemaic Empire. It had been founded by Alexander himself and named after him. It was a cosmopolitan center was a center to which people from all over the Mediterranean world were drawn uh, because of its high emphasis upon culture and literacy and because of the great library that was established there in Alexandria. Alexandria would, would survive beyond this period into the Roman Imperial period and be a great city in the Roman Imperial period. In fact, even beyond the time of Rome, Alexandria would become one of the major centers of the Christian church. In fact, a patriarch of the Christian church would be resident in the city of Alexandria, as one would be in Jerusalem, and one would be in Antioch, and one would be in Ephesus, and one would be uh, in Constantinople. And, and this, this is the foundation of the Eastern Orthodox Church, as separate from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in those days, they weren't separate. It was just one church. But because those churches would become... I mean, those patriarchs would become part of an empire that would be separated, as the Byzantine Empire, from the Western civilization and empire. The, the patriarch at Rome would emerge separate, or would separate from the Eastern patriarchs and, and become, ultimately become what we know as the Pope. 
condition for the, Greek, uh, for the Jews to live in Alexandria and to be citizens was fluency in the Greek language and acceptance, if not adoption, of the Greek culture. So they had to become Hellenized. The, the Jews had to become Hellenized in order to become citizens of Alexandria and the Ptolemaic Empire. After a while, it began to become obvious to many of the Jews that they were losing their Jewish heritage. They were no longer capable of understanding Hebrew, the language, therefore they couldn't read their own scriptures, and they were losing contact with Jerusalem, so to speak. And, and this began to disturb many of them and cause them to want to halt this erosion. At the same time, there was a sense in which the, the Jews were, were felt a little bit inferior to the Greek culture because the Greeks were saying, look how great we are. What other culture in history has had a Socrates, a Plato, and an Aristotle? You know, all of these and, and numerous others, Pythagoras, and a long list of great uh, Greek philosophers and, and writers and so forth. Uh, who is as great as the Greeks? Well, the Jews began to think, you know, we've got a great heritage. I mean, Moses is certainly every bit as great, if not greater, than Aristotle. And so these Jews, wanting to, to uh, vindicate their heritage and their name, thought, you know, we better get, make the Greeks familiar with our scripture. And so they had the scriptures translated from Hebrew into Greek. This is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Walmart can correct me, that the Hebrew scriptures were ever translated into a non-Hebrew tongue. As far as we know, is that's true. Because you count the Aramaic and Babylon, but that's the same language. Yeah. Your, your point is correct. Okay. My point. <laughs> <laughs> and so, they asked permission of the reigning king, uh, whose name was Ptolemy II Philadelphus, uh, if, if they could translate the scripture from Hebrew into the Greek text into the Greek language. Now, there's a bit of uncertainty about all of this. What the product is absolutely certain, but how the product was arrived at, there's a bit of uncertainty at, concerning. There is a historian that I have referred to before whose name was Josephus. He lived in the first century, A.D., and he wrote a work called The Antiquities of the Jews which is a long work, which if you ever sit down with it and open your Old Testament, you can kind of parallel for long ways. You can parallel writings from the Old Testament and the writings of Josephus. But, but he also records the intertestamental period, parts of it anyway. And in the second chapter of the 12th book of his Antiquities, he claims that there was a courtier in the court of Ptolemy, whose name was Aristius, and that he had a special interest in the Jews and in their scripture. And he allegedly wrote a letter urging Ptolemy to translate the Jewish scriptures into Greek and then, adding the, and then add them to the great library that was in Alexandria. Now today I don't think there's any way to make a comparison because there are great libraries in this world in many places. You know, the great British Library, the National French Library, Library of Congress, the, the University Libraries all over the world. There are 
large and, and, and very, very important libraries all over the world. But if you go to the world we're talking about, there were very few libraries of any significant size at all. Because for one thing, they, they weren't writing in like this yet. They were still writing on scrolls, which meant it took a lot of space to keep any kind of storage, you know, for scrolls. And so this library that was established in Alexandria was one of two, maybe three, but at least two greatest libraries in the known world. Josephus tells us that the head librarian at Alexandria was a man by the name of Demetrius. And that he was in the process of searching everywhere all over the known world to find more scrolls to put in his library. And Josephus records that Ptolemy actually had a conversation with Demetrius and Ptolemy said, well, how many volumes do we have in our library here in Alexandria? And he says, 20 times 10,000 or 200,000 volumes. And he says, my goal is soon to raise it to 500,000 volumes. Well, I don't think they ever got there, but even 200,000 volumes, thinking that every one of them is a scroll, it has to be stored. Everyone was hand copied. We're, we're talking about an immense investment and a very difficult thing to maintain. Well, Ptolemy, being a cultured man, a man of literacy, accepted Aristius' suggestion, according to Josephus, and ordered that a letter be sent to the high priest in Jerusalem. And this letter was to request that an official copy of the Hebrew, Josephus keeps referring to the law, and so what we assume, particularly because of the short length of time that Josephus tells us it was translated in, that we're probably just talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Torah, that, uh, that he asked that that be sent, an official copy, a correct, you know, with the high priest imprimatur, if you will, be sent to Alexandria for the purposes of translation. To make this agreeable to the high priest, he sent an enormous gift. And Josephus spends pages, well, a, at least a couple of pages, describing that gift, you know, gold and silver and precious thorns and tables and all kinds of wonderful stuff that was to be put in the temple or to, to be given to the temple in Jerusalem. Ptolemy in the letter not only requested that an official copy of the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the Torah be sent, but that six elders from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who were fluent, who, who understood the scripture, could interpret them correctly, and apparently understood Greek, or at least could correct Greek translators, would be sent along as well. Well, six times 12 is 72, okay? So we're talking about 72 elders. Well, Eliezer, who was the high priest at that time, was glad to comply. And so he sent the copy and he sent the, the 72 elders to Alexandria. And Demetrius, the head of the Alexandrian library, was put in charge of the whole project. Get the picture? Demetrius, wanting to do an excellent job, cloistered the 72. He took them out, and Josephus talks about a causeway going out into the harbor uh, at Alexandria, out to an island, and on the island called Pharos Island. These 72 were cloistered out there, and they were set to work. Everything was supplied that they needed, scrolls, ink, pens, food, everything they needed to do the job. They were cloistered out there and set to work doing the translation. According to Josephus, the 72 scholars took 72 days to translate the Torah, 
into the correct, totally agreed amongst them, translation of those five books. That's where you get the name of this translation, Septuagint, from basically the Greek word for 70. And this, the sign for the Septuagint is the Ro are the Roman numerals LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. And, and that's the way it's, it's always been known down through time as the LXX or the Septuagint. We're talking about around 250 BC. If that translation did not include the whole Old Testament, the other books were translated not too long after that in the next few decades. So pretty much in the third century before Christ, the whole Old Testament and the Apocrypha were the apocryphal books that were existing at that time were translated into the Greek language. Now, modern scholars, I checked it out with Dr. Walmart last night to make sure I wasn't uh, misspeaking here, but modern scholars, because as I mentioned to you before, he teaches a course on this. Modern scholars, many of them at least, believe that Josephus' story here is fanciful. That Aristius' letter is a, is a later invention, that it didn't exist, it didn't, never was really written, and, and that it showed up later, and uh, there, you know, it has been translated uh, into English, but many believe that it was a later invention and wasn't a true thing. It, it seems, though, that the Septuagint was added to the Alexandrian library, but the motivating force, at least according to modern scholars, was not Aristius was not Demetrius, was not Ptolemy, but was the need of the Jews in Alexandria to have the scripture in Greek so that they wouldn't lose their literary and cultural heritage. That seems to have been the motivating force, whether these other factors were true or not. The Septuagint is still very, very important. Copies of it do exist. What, what, what's the oldest? Do you remember, Lynn, the oldest co existing copy of the Septuagint dates back to what? Third or fourth century, doesn't it? Yeah, fourth or fifth. Fourth or fifth. Uh, we, you know, the thing that we have to keep remembering is there were no printing presses. Block printing would not be invented until the eighth century by the Chinese. A and so everything had to be hand copied. And even though they changed to the codex, the, this, this form, like we have here, pages bound together, uh, in about the second century, you're still talking about handwritten. Everything's handwritten. Which always leaves room for error, right? Because you have somebody saying, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of armies. <laughs> you know, whatever. Whereas the printing press, if you get it correct the first time, it'll keep printing the same correct version, theoretically. A and the cost, the immense cost involved, in, in producing these handwritten accounts. So, the Septuagint would be very essential to a man by the name of Jerome. Now, some of you heard of Jerome. Jerome lived in the Roman Empire. Uh, he spent latter years of his life over in Bethlehem where he translated the entire scripture into Latin. Now, pieces of it had been translated in Latin before, but he produced the first consistent total copy of scripture in Latin, and he used the Septuagint as one of his primary sources. So the value of the Septuagint is that 2,200 years ago, we can read what the Hebrews thought the Hebrew scripture meant in Greek. 
So that today, we, when we run into an enigmatic passage in the Old Testament in Hebrew, where it's hard to understand the Hebrew, and not really sure the context of the Hebrew, what does he really mean here? You can go back to Septuagint and see what 2,200 years ago they thought it meant. And, and that helps to give more accurate understanding of the Scripture, even in modern English translations. So the Septuagint has been a very, very important contribution to the biblical record. Well, meanwhile, warfare between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids went on for years and years. And sometimes the Seleucids would invade the Ptolemaic area and the, Ptolemaics, the Ptolemies would invade the Seleucid area. And when they did that, their armies kept marching back and forth through Jerusalem and Judah and Israel. You know, we are not real excited about armies today marching through our land, but in those days, they had no way to supply themselves except off the land. They didn't have sea rations, you know, or what do they, what do they call them today? MREs. MREs. Uh, they didn't have MREs in those days. So if you're in the way and an army's coming through, it's like a plague of grasshoppers, you know. They're going to take your crop, they're going to take your animals, and they're going to take your daughters, and, you know, it's really a bad scene. So this wasn't really good for the land with these armies marching back and forth. In the first wars, the Ptolemies were victorious, but in 198 B.C., the Seleucid army crushed the Ptolemaic army near the headwaters of the Jordan River on the southern slopes of Mount Hermon. And with the Seleucid victory, the land of Israel and Judah became part of the Seleucid Empire. At first, things didn't seem to change much for the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. But beginning with a foreign policy of a Seleucid by the name of Antiochus III, things began to change. Whereas the Ptolemies had been rather benign in their government over Judah, the Seleucids were not. Antiochus III began to feel invincible. I'm a mighty man, and I'm going to conquer vast areas, and I'm going to bring other areas that Alexander had conquered under my rule. And so he began the process of moving towards Greece. So the armies of the Seleucids were moving this way, and just past Sardis, I put a little dot right there because it's not noted on this map or any of the other transparencies that I had, is the city of Magnesia. And there at Magnesia, his armies ran smack dab into an eastward moving army of the Roman Republic. And his army was crushed by the Romans at that point at Magnesia. He decided then, that was in the year 190 B.C., that the Romans were now a new threat to the ongoing existence of the Greek Empire. The Romans already had occupied parts of Greece, and as a result, he began to retrench. His successor, not immediate successor, but eventual successor, is known as Antiochus IV. He ruled from 175 to 163 B.C., and he be embarked on a program for unifying the entire empire under his direct rule. And so he decided, I'm going to Hellenize all the people who live in my empire, and they're all going to worship Zeus as the supreme god. And to facilitate this, he proclaimed himself Zeus incarnate, Theos Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. 
In 169 BC, he attacked Egypt, defeated the Egyptians. And on his return home, he looted the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you've never read the Apocrypha, you may not know of the various writings that are in there, but two of the very important writings that are in here are known as 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 1st being far more important than 2nd Maccabees. And in 1st Maccabees, we read these words, He, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand, and all its utensils, he also took the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for the drink offering, the bowls, the golden censers, and the curtain, and the golden decoration from the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. This is in the first chapter of 1 Maccabees. And by the way, most, most historians, at least biblical historians, will accept most of 1 Maccabees as probably being really reasonably accurate history. A lot of the Apocrypha is really silly. But 1 Maccabees seem, in fact, there were many who for a long time debated on whether 1 Maccabees should be actually included in the canon or not. Not long after that, Egypt revolted against the new onslaught of Antiochus Epiphanes, and therefore he invaded Egypt again. But there he met face to face with a Roman general who showed up in Egyptian soil and said, be gone, Antiochus. <laughs> In effect, he, he challenged him and said, if you don't leave, you will have war with Rome, or he implied that. And Antiochus, uh, like the man in the scripture who, who has an army of 10,000 and is going to go out and fight the army of 20,000, has to stop and think, can I defeat the 20,000 with my 10? Uh, he stopped and he thought, uh, I don't think I want to take on Rome. So he, he left, he exited Egypt, but as he returned north, he decided to fortify his frontiers fortify his frontiers against the threat of a possible Egyptian-Roman alliance. And that fortification of his frontiers would have a profound impact upon Judah because that was the frontier country. And in studying this, we come to a passage in the book of Daniel in that somewhat enigmatic 11th chapter, which I don't think I'll read today because we're, we're out of time. But I think this is a good place to pick it up because many people have, have taken the passage in the 11th chapter of Daniel and projected at least the concepts from it to the end times. And, and so you see in the so-called abomination of desolation, not only an event which occurred uh, 2,200 years ago, but one that is thought by many to also occur again in the end times in some form or another. And so Antiochus Epiphanes becomes a a precursor of the Antichrist. And so we'll, we'll look at that uh, next week. This one, the Ark disappeared? <laughs> no, the Ark of the Covenant had already disappeared. The question still exists as to when it disappeared. If you go by the theology of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> <laughs> the Ark disappeared when the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak invaded uh, Judah in the 10th century before Christ. That wasn't accurate. <laughs> you mean the ark is actually somewhere in a warehouse in the United States, huh? <laughs> Others believe that the ark of the covenant disappeared in the at the time of the Babylonian invasion. 
Some think that Jeremiah spirited it off and hid it somewhere, maybe in Mount Sinai. Uh, others think that the Babylonians just carried it off. So it didn't exist at that time. They had, they had replicated everything, but you can't replicate the Ark of the Covenant. They had everything else in the temple. Any other questions or comments? When, when did the Hadrarian uh, Alexandria get destroyed? It's a good question. Do you remember, Dr. Walmart? The Christian movement, of course, Clement of Alexandria and the whole Alexandrian school uh, survived at least to the third century. Yeah. The assumption is that there was some kind of a school there. Yeah. Probably included the library, of course, would become Christianized by that time. I have a feeling, I'd have to check it out. I don't really know for sure but that the library survived probably until the um, Muslim era. But I'm not positive about that. Muslims were very kind of classic when it came to anything Greek and Christian, anything that they viewed as pagan. But it's a good question. I'll have to see, uh, check up on that. 